Welcome to Holocaust Histories, the podcast featuring mind-boggling stories from the Holocaust, remarkable tales of heroism and horror that are guaranteed to amaze you. Season 1. In the prime of their lives and careers, boxers' dreams are snatched and replaced by nightmares. Boxing is no longer for money and pride, but for bread scraps and survival. Fighting now takes place in concentration camps. The winner lives another day. The loser is killed. Dive into the astonishing stories of boxers' resilience and courage in the face of incomprehensible terrors. Each episode features a boxer with a different nationality and a unique experience during the Holocaust. Some will live, some will die. They will all fight to survive. Thanks for listening to this episode. Please rate, subscribe, and tell a friend. You can send any questions, corrections, and comments to holocausthistories at gmail.com. This episode contains graphic descriptions and sensitive subject matters. Listener discretion advised. In spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. I simply can't build up my hopes on a foundation consisting of confusion, misery, and death. Anne Frank Tadeusz Piotrowski was the Warsaw bantamweight champion prior to the outbreak of World War II. His prominence in Poland led to his nickname, Teddy. Teddy was not Jewish but faced persecution from Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union due to his Polish nationality. In World War II, Polish citizens, especially in the city of Warsaw, faced particular horrors and in greater numbers. Poland had the highest death rate in World War II, sitting above 17%, including about 90% of the Jewish population. Teddy was sent to concentration camps, where his boxing abilities were tested under extraordinary circumstances of life or death. He joined an underground resistance group in the camp and attempted to assassinate a Nazi leader. Like many citizens of Poland during the war, he confronted danger courageously on numerous occasions. The first mass uprising in German-occupied Europe took place in Warsaw, followed by another, even larger-scale uprising the next year. This is a story of bravery and resilience, the story, the story of Tadeusz Piotrowski. Tadeusz Piotrowski was born on April 8, 1917, in Russia-occupied Warsaw, Poland. He was born into a world at war, with World War I three years in. His father was an engineer, working on the expansion of the Warsaw Railway system. His mother was a teacher. Both were part of the Polish intelligentsia, and both were lapsed Catholics. At the age of six, Tadeusz began studying at the prestigious Stanislaw Stajic High School in Warsaw. His favorite subjects were geography, history, and Polish. He joined the Warsaw Scouts team and started playing football. His father passed away on October 6, 1927, after a 10-day battle with a serious illness. The family's monetary situation quickly declined. Tadeusz would tutor, teach skating, and make drawings in order to earn an income and support his family. The Poland National Census of 1931 documented a population of 32 million, more than 3 million being Jewish. The population of Warsaw was around 2.5 million, with about 250,000 Jews. 
79% of Polish Jews spoke Yiddish as their first language, a dialect dating back to 9th century Ashkenazi Jews from Central Europe. Towards the end of 1933, during his junior high school year, Tadeusz joined a boxing club called Legia Warsaw. He stopped playing football because of the prospect of injury. Early in 1934, at the age of 17, he had his first match against a Polish boxing champion and soon-to-be Olympian, Antony Czortek. Two years older than Tadeusz, Antony was famous in Poland among boxing fans. He was the champion of Poland three times, 1934, 1938, and 1939. He fought in 23 international matches, winning 18, losing 14, and drawing one. Tadeusz was defeated by Antony, but drew the attention of Felix Stam, aka Papa, the pioneer of Polish boxing and a seven-time Olympic boxer. Tadeusz trained under Stam at Legia Warsaw. His training motto was, you want to be good, you have to train, train a lot. By the end of 1936, Tadeusz had established himself among the best boxers in Warsaw. With his success in the ring, he soon earned a nickname from the Polish sports press, Teddy. He became the Warsaw Bantamweight Boxing Champion and qualified for the finals of the Polish National Boxing Championship. Polish sports magazine Przeglad Sportowy declared him the best bantamweight boxer in Warsaw. The Polish National Championship of Boxing took place between April 10th and April 25th of 1937. On April 11th, Teddy fought Stanislav Gorek and won from a points decision. 13 days later, he fought Bernard Jarzebek and was defeated. The following day, Jarzebek lost in the finals against Zygmunt Kozielek, who would win his first of three bantamweight national championships. Anti-Semitism grew rapidly in the 1930s prior to the outbreak of World War II, as did Catholic extremism, fascism, and nationalism. There was no exception for Poland. Between 1935 and 1937, 79 Jews were killed and another 500 injured in anti-Jewish violence. The Polish government condemned the violence, fearing international backlash. They passed a law that required Jewish university students to sit in a designated section of lecture halls, known as ghetto benches. In January 1937, Foreign Minister Josef Beck claimed that Poland could inhabit 500,000 Jews. He hoped that over the next 30 years, 80,000 to 100,000 Jews would leave Poland. To Beck's chagrin, the opposite happened. The Jewish population increased to around 3.5 million by 1939, about 10% of the population. 56% of doctors and 43% of teachers in Poland were Jews. 77% lived in cities like Warsaw, while the remaining 23% lived in smaller villages. Warsaw had approximately 375,000 Jews, about one-third of its population. Only New York City had more Jewish residents at the time. The city of Łódź had approximately 233,000 Polish Jews. As the Jewish population grew, anti-Semitism continued to rise. In 1938, Teddy was expelled from school and his boxing group was disbanded. The same year, between March 11th and March 13th, Nazi Germany, led by dictator Adolf Hitler, invaded and annexed Austria. Austria was now occupied and belonged to Hitler and Germany. Many Austrian Jews attempted to flee to southern Poland, 
Just over two months later, on May 29th, Hungary passed anti-Jewish legislation, similar to Germany's Nuremberg Laws. Hungary was falling under control of fascism and often cooperating with Germany. In 1938, Hermann Göring and an entire German military delegation visited Poland. The ex-president of the United States, Herbert Hoover, would also visit. Polish army general Tadusz Ketreba said on the possibility of military conflict with Germany that Germany's army is three times stronger than theirs. Members of the Polish parliament called for the banning of pro-Nazi organizations, but this never took place. The population of Poland was around 34 million, with around 1.5 million belonging to the Poland paramilitary group, the Airborne and Anti-Defense Gas League. They held anti-Nazi protests throughout Poland. A protest occurred on August 23, 1938, after a group of Nazis threw Polish railroad worker Tadeusz Winicki under a train. His legs would have to be amputated. Two months later in Germany, on October 28th and 29th, the Gestapo arrested 17,000 Polish Jews. They were taken from their homes and detained by the Polish border. They were forced on heavily guarded trains and transported. The majority, over 8,000, were sent and detained in refugee camps at Zabuznik. About 1,500 were placed in Konitz and another 5,000 in Boyden. The Polish border authorities were taken by surprise by the amount of people, thousands of who were allowed into Poland. 1,300 Polish Jews found refuge in Leipzig. Poland eventually closed their borders, and by October 30th, there were thousands of Polish Jews homeless and in wretched conditions. Few were allowed to return home, but only temporarily, to sell their properties, often forcibly for much less money than worth. Those who tried to escape the refugee camps to go back to Germany were shot dead. Cantor Joseph Seisner was one of 900 Hamburg Jews deported. On his arrival at Zabuznik, he gave the following account. Barracks were all around a desperate crowd. Here and there, trunks and blankets were lying around. Hungry and thirsty, we moved around the big compound, looking for friends, inquiring what cities were represented. We slept in barracks like horses, crowded in stalls and resting on straw, living on a little bread and butter. I strolled around the camp, moved over resting bodies, stumbled over trunks. I got some fresh air and passed by the railway station, where a great number of Jews warmed themselves and laid all around the halls. You hardly could find your way through such a mass of unhappy people. Polish historian Emanuel Ringelblum voluntarily spent five weeks in Zabuznik. He provided assistance to the trapped refugees. He created a welfare office, a legal section, and a migration department with the assistance of the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, the JDC. Ringelblum said, I do not think any Jewish community has ever experienced so cruel and merciless expulsion as this one. The future is envisioned in desperate terms. People in the camp have received notices that they have lost their Polish citizenship. Zhebuzhin has become a symbol for the defenselessness of Polish Jews. Jews have been humiliated to the level of lepers, to fourth-class citizens, and as a result we are all affected by this terrible tragedy. Most of the 17,000 Polish Jews were stranded at the refugee camp for nearly a year exiled from Germany and prohibited from entering Poland. 
The Polish government responded by expelling German citizens from western areas of Poland. Zindel and Rivka Grinspan were Polish Jews who emigrated to Hanover, Germany in 1911. They had six children, the youngest being Herschel, born on March 28, 1921. Three of their children died during childhood, one being stillborn, one dying in a car accident, and the other from scarlet fever. Herschel was proudly Jewish and fought back against the anti-Semitism he faced in school. He was often suspended from school for fighting. He dropped out at the age of 14 because of the discrimination against Jewish students. Despite a loving and tight-knit family, he moved to Paris to live with relatives in a small Polish Orthodox Jewish area. He spent his time walking around the streets, reciting Yiddish poems to himself. He was also frequent to cinemas and cafes. He was shy but passionate and cried when talking about the suffering of Jews around the world, particularly his family. By April 1937, his German re-entry permit expired. His Polish passport also expired in January of 1938, leaving him without any papers. His desire was to remain in Paris, but he could not legally work or study there. The following month, France ordered him to leave the country, but he refused. In March of 1938, Poland passed a law that deprived Polish citizens of their citizenship if they had lived continuously abroad for more than five years. Herschel was now a stateless person, trapped in peril and hiding in Paris illegally. His situation became increasingly dire. Unable to work, he relied on his uncle Abraham's financial support. The problem was, he too was already very poor. Back in Hanover, the Grinspan family was arrested and deported to Zhebuzhin. There in the refugee camp, Herschel's sister Berta sent him a letter detailing the family's tragic events. Herschel asked his uncle Abraham to send money to his family, but he did not. Herschel was upset and left his uncle's home. He spent the night at a cheap motel. The next morning on November 7, 1938, he went to a gun shop in the Rue du Faubourg de Saint-Martin. There he bought a 6.35mm revolver and a box of 25 bullets for 235 francs. He then went to the German embassy to assassinate the German ambassador to France, Johannes von Welcheck. He was leaving for his daily morning walk. Herschel entered the embassy and unknowingly walked right by him. At 9.45am, Herschel walked to the reception desk, claimed to be a spy, and requested to see the ambassador, to give him, and I quote, the most important document. On duty was German diplomat Ernst von Roth. He was the third secretary of the German embassy in Paris. Herschel, 17 years old at the time, entered the 29-year-old von Roth's office and shouted, You're a filthy Bosch. In the name of 12,000 persecuted Jews, here is the document. Herschel shot him five times. He would stand there and wait for his arrest, not making any attempt to escape. Bosch was a slur for German soldier. He quickly confessed, repeatedly stating his motive, the persecution of Jews. In his pocket was a postcard to his parents that read, With God's help, my dear parents, I could not do otherwise. May God forgive me. The heart bleeds when I hear of your tragedy and that of the 12,000 Jews. I must protest so that the whole world hears my protest, and that I will do. Forgive me. Following his arrest, Herschel told the police, Being a Jew is not a crime. I am not a dog. I have a right to live, and the Jewish people have a right to exist on this earth. 
Wherever I have been, I have been chased like an animal. Roth was in critical condition in the hospital, with near-fatal shots hitting his spleen, stomach, and pancreas. Hitler sent two of his best doctors, physician Karl Brandt and surgeon George Magnus. Nevertheless, Roth ended up dying two days later on November 9, 1938. On the same day, following a meeting with Hitler, propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels made a speech at a beer hall in Munich. The audience held many veteran Nazi members. He said he would not be surprised if German people were so outraged by the assassination of a German diplomat by a Jew that they would take the law into their own hands and attack Jewish businesses, community centers, and synagogues. He said such spontaneous outbursts should not be openly organized by the Nazi party, but should not be opposed or prevented either. Goebbels recorded in his diary, In the afternoon, the death of the German diplomat von Roth is announced. That's good. I go to the party reception in the old Rathaus. Terrific activity. I brief Hitler on the affair. He decides, allow the demonstrations to go on. Withdraw the police. The Jews should feel the people's fury. I issue appropriate instructions to the police and party. Then I give a brief speech on the subject to the party's leadership. Thunderous applause. Everyone's dashed to the telephone. Now the people will act. In a matter of hours, a pogrom against Jews began, and chaos ensued. Colonel of the SS Heinrich Müller sent a message to the entire SS. In it, he stated that the most extreme measures were to be taken against Jewish people. Nazi members burned synagogues, even forcing Jews to set them ablaze themselves. Mobs looted Jewish-owned businesses and houses were broken into and ransacked. The SS were instructed not to interfere with the riots and to seize Jewish archives from the synagogues and community offices. Around 700 of Germany's 1,400 synagogues had been destroyed. 7,500 Jewish businesses were also demolished. The SS were especially looking to arrest, and I quote, healthy male Jews who are not too old, so they could be used at labor camps. The Germans recorded 91 deaths, but it's estimated that the number is far higher. 30,000 Jews were arrested and sent to concentration camps. The rioting lasted until the next day, when glass shards filled the streets from windows that were smashed. The anti-Semitic attacks on November 9th and 10th would be known as Kristallnacht, meaning Crystal Night. Daily Telegraph correspondent Hugh Green wrote, Mob law ruled in Berlin throughout the afternoon and evening, and hordes of hooligans indulged in an orgy of destruction. I have seen several anti-Jewish outbreaks in Germany during the last five years, but never anything as nauseating as this. Racial hatred and hysteria seem to have taken complete hold of otherwise decent people. I saw fashionably dressed women clapping their hands and screaming with glee, while respectable middle-class mothers held up their babies to see the fun. Berlin and Vienna had two of the largest Jewish communities in Germany, thus experienced the worst of the riots. Both cities had hundreds of suicides post-Kristallnacht. Former German Kaiser Wilhelm II stated, For the first time I am ashamed to be German. Jews were required to pay for the cost of all the damages to their residences and businesses. They were also taxed for the murder of Vom Roth. Over the next 10 months, more than 115,000 Jews emigrated, many to other European countries and the US. 14,000 went to Shanghai, China. 
Ruth Winkleman lived in Berlin and was 10 years old during the attacks. On her way to school with her father, she stated, We saw broken shop windows and shards of glass lying in the streets. And then we saw a shop where someone had painted the word Jew. Smoke billowed from the new synagogue after Nazi stormtroopers broke in. They burned the holy Torah and everything in sight. Our father took me and my little sister in his arms that night and said, this is the beginning of a very difficult time and we'll try to live through it. Her father died in January 1944 in Monowitz concentration camp. Ruth, her sister and mother went into hiding in southern Berlin. They stayed in a wooden shed without electricity or water. Ruth said, when the temperature outside fell to minus 10, it was minus 10 inside too. And in the last four months, we lived on nothing but red turnips and oatmeal. They had to grind the oatmeal from whole grains, putting them through a coffee grinder three times and then sifting it. It took half an hour to produce three spoonfuls. Ruth and her mother survived the Holocaust, but 15 of their relatives died. Hitler and German foreign minister Joachim von Ribbentrop attended von Ross' funeral on the 17th of November. During a eulogy, Ribbentrop said the shooting was an attack by Jews on the Germans. Herschel was devastated to learn his assassination was being used to further Nazi propaganda, which led to further attacks on Jews. Herschel awaited trial in a prison in the south of France. One of his three lawyers had the idea to claim the killing was a crime of passion. Vincent de Moro Giafferi wanted to fictionalize that Vom Roth and Herschel had a sexual relationship that soured. He hoped this legal strategy would get Herschel a lesser sentence. Herschel, however, was angered by the idea, proudly defending his Jewish avenger motive. Moro Giafferi told exiled German communist Eric Wallenberg the following, That young man is a fool, infatuated with himself. He refuses to give a non-political character to his act by saying, for example, that he assassinated Vom Roth because he had money quarrels with him following homosexual relations. Yet such an attitude in regard to the murder of Vom Roth is necessary in order to save the Jews of the Third Reich, whose lives are becoming more and more precarious in regard to prosperity, their health, their futures, etc. If only he would deny the political motives of his crime and assert that he had only personal vengeance in mind, vengeance as a victim of homosexuality, the Nazis would lose their best pretext for exercising their reprisals against the German Jews, who are the victims of his fit of madness and now of his obstinacy. The German lawyers argued Herschel acted as the agent of a Jewish conspiracy, but could find no supporting evidence, which delayed the case. He remained a prisoner until June 14, 1940, when the German army occupied Paris. French authorities were evacuated south. Herschel was sent to Orleans and then to Bourges prison. A German aircraft attacked the convoy, killing several prisoners while others ran away. The remaining prisoners were taken back to the Bourges prison. Herschel had survived but was left behind by the French authorities in the commotion. He didn't run away but rather walked back to the prison and turned himself in. Authorities there told him to go to Toulouse, an unoccupied area, and surrender there. And so he did. SS commander Karl Bommelberg arrived in Paris on June 15th with one mission, to find Herschel. France surrendered a week later and Herschel was captured. He was extradited to Germany on July 18, 1940. He was imprisoned and interrogated by the Gestapo at their headquarters in Berlin. 
He was then transferred to Moabit Prison, also in Berlin, and eventually sent to Sachsenhausen and Flossenburg concentration camps. At Sachsenhausen, he was living in a barrack for special prisoners and waited for trial. Herschel was lawyerless. His former lawyer, Moro Giafferi, had escaped to Switzerland. The German justice minister and staff of lawyers argued Herschel was not a German citizen and he was not old enough for the death penalty. He was charged with high treason and if found guilty, would be executed. Furthermore, Herschel had told the Gestapo sometime in mid-1941 that he planned on using the homosexual defense. However, the justice minister knew this to be a lie, as Herschel told other prisoners and previous defense attorneys. The trial was set to be held in January of 1942, but never came to fruition. Hitler and Goebbels did not want to risk having homosexuality linked to Nazism. It also came to light that Vomroth's brother Gustav was court-martialed for homosexuality. In September 1942, Herschel was transferred to Magdeburg prison and was never heard from again. His fate is unknown but presumed by most to have been killed by the Nazis. Fritz Dahm of the German Foreign Office said he died just before the end of the war. Many believe he died in Sachsenhausen in late 1942. In 2016, German historian Armin Führer and Austrian archivist Christa Prokisch found a photograph taken on July 3, 1946 in the archives of Vienna's Jewish Museum. It appears to show Herschel in a camp for displaced persons in Bamberg, southern Germany. A face recognition test of the photograph returned a 95% likelihood, considered the highest possible match. German historian Armin Führer said, there is little doubt this is Herschel Grinspan, a picture taken purely by chance. It is so significant because Grinspan's fate has remained a mystery, and the question as to whether he survived the war and Holocaust has remained unsolved for over 70 years. It certainly raises more questions than it answers. What did he do with the rest of his life? And perhaps more importantly, how did he manage to survive the Nazis? Was he protected, and if so, by whom? World War II historian Roger Morehouse was unsure about Herschel's survival. He stated, The Nazis did not tend to permit those of their prominent prisoners who had outlived their usefulness to escape unscathed. Given Grinspan's notoriety, I find it a little hard to believe that they would have easily allowed him to survive. If he did survive, it prompts a host of new questions about the circumstances of his survival and his ultimate fate. French doctor Alain Cunot made an extensive search for Grinspan during the late 1950s. He reported he found no evidence that he was alive. He said there were no references to Grinspan in German documents after 1942. According to American historian Alan E. Steinweis, Grinspan was executed by the SS in 1942 when it became clear that he would not be tried for Roth's murder. On April 28, 1939, Hitler announced Germany's withdrawal from the non-aggression pact signed with Poland just over five years earlier, foreshadowing the events to come. On August 22nd, Hitler gave a speech to his SS commanders. The object of the war is physically to destroy the enemy. That is why I have prepared for the moment only in the East, with orders to kill without pity or mercy all men, women, and children of Polish descent or language. Only in this way can we obtain the living space we need. The following day, Germany and Russia signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. This stated Russia would not interfere with an invasion against Poland. 
In fact, they would be required to assist the Germans. Germany in return would allow them to keep some of the occupied Polish land. On August 31, 1939, under Operation Himmler, a series of propaganda operations by the SS, dozens of attacks were staged. The Germans framed the Poles of being the assailants. In reality, a group of German operatives dressed in Polish uniforms seized the Gliwitz radio station. They broadcast a short anti-German message in Polish. The following day on September 1st, 1939 at 4.45 a.m., Hitler ordered the invasion of Poland. The attacks began around dawn, consisting of more than 2,000 tanks, 900 bomber planes, 400 fighter planes, and about 363,000 horses. In total, Germany deployed 60 divisions and nearly 1.5 million men. Bombing of civilians took place on a massive scale. Poland had insufficient modern equipment and weaponry. They deployed about 400 planes, and at least 350 were shot down by the Luftwaffe, most in the first few days of war. Poland also deployed 600 TK and TKS tanks. They had approximately 1.2 million soldiers, but some didn't even carry weapons. This is London. You will now hear a statement by the Prime Minister. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently, this country is at war with Germany. On September 3, 1939, Britain and France declared war on Germany, but took very little action to help the Poles. Russia also invaded Poland on behalf of their pact. Krakow was captured on September 6, while Poles waited with diminished hopes of an Allied rescue. Teddy volunteered for the first battery of the defense of Warsaw on September 8, 1939. He joined the Light Artillery Regiment. He was one of 130,000 Polish Jews who served in the army. Emanuel Ringelblum returned to Warsaw from Switzerland. He joined the Polish army and participated in defense watches and helped those injured in air raids. He continued working for the JDC, helping to organize emergency relief and refugee aid. The same day that Teddy enlisted, the Nazis reached Wola and other parts of Warsaw. Hitler sent 1,200 aircraft to destroy Warsaw on September 25th, known now as Black Monday. Warsaw was bombarded to rubble by Luftwaffe attacks. Jewish prisoners were forced to clear the destruction. Teddy fought until Warsaw surrendered on September 28, 1939. Warsaw was fully occupied by the Nazis by October 1st. Hitler demanded that Poland be conquered in six weeks, but Nazi leaders thought it would require three months. The Polish army was defeated in three weeks. About 65,000 Polish troops were killed, and another 660,000 were taken as prisoners. 140,000 of them were sent to concentration camps. 32,000 Jewish soldiers were killed, along with another 20,000 Jewish civilians. Another 61,000 were detained and many taken to concentration camps. 
In total, around 200,000 Polish civilians were killed during the attacks. About 16,000 German troops were killed. Teddy survived the siege of Warsaw and in the spring of 1940 departed to France for refuge. He traveled covertly, carried a German newspaper, and wore a German-styled hat. Regardless, he was arrested en route by the Hungarian-Yugoslav border. He was deported back to Poland and interrogated by the Gestapo. He was then sent to prison in Muszyna, then in Novi Schautz and Tarnow. In prison at Tarnow, after an inmate escaped, the Nazis forced prisoners to stand with their hands above their heads for 24 hours straight. 95% of the people fell and were killed. Just seven were alive and received beatings until they were dead. On June 14, 1940, Teddy was sent to Auschwitz in what was the first mass transport. He was among 728 prisoners. He was labeled as Camp Prisoner Number 77. He was selected to live and work rather than be killed immediately. Teddy lived in Barrack Number 24. Between 4 a.m. and 6 p.m., he mowed and harvested the rye. After the harvest, he worked in a carpentry shop. He also had jobs as a haymaker and builder. He carried sacks of cement and beams up the hills amid screams and beatings, all while Auschwitz commander Rudolf Hess observed, often with binoculars. Anyone who was slow was beaten or killed. Winter arrived with temperatures below minus 20 degrees Celsius, or minus 4 degrees Fahrenheit. The same amount of work was required for the prisoners. They were dressed in clogs without socks and became frostbitten and gangrene. They were starving on a 20 gram bread limit per day. In a ravenous state, some prisoners ate a cow's placenta and dug up a pig that died from dysentery and ate it. Those who ate the pig died. On October 16, 1940, the Warsaw Ghetto was created by the Nazi party. Its intention was to confine and imprison Jews within Warsaw. It was announced by SS Hans Frank, who was the governor general of occupied Poland and in charge of the ghetto. A month later, on November 15, 1940, the Warsaw Ghetto was sealed from the outside world. It was divided into two sub-ghettos. The southern area was known as the Small Ghetto, and the northern area the Large Ghetto. The Small Ghetto was made for non-Jews, like Poles, Communists, and Socialists. The Large Ghetto imprisoned mainly Jews. The area was about 840 acres, or about 43,560 square feet. It initially held 450,000 Jews. Each room held nine people, and food was extremely scarce. The ghetto held about 30% of Warsaw's population in an area that held 2% of its population. It was enclosed with three meter high concrete walls and topped with barbed wire. Those caught attempting escape were shot dead. Starvation, disease, and executions quickly became the norm in the Warsaw Ghetto. Jews were fed small amounts of bread, turnips, and potatoes in what amounted to around 180 calories per day. The black market thrived in the Warsaw Ghetto and supplied 80% of its food. Warsaw Ghetto archivist Perez Opakinski wrote, At night the smuggling is carried out over the roofs of the houses, through narrow holes, through cellars, and even through the wall of the ghetto itself. Who knows if someday a memorial will not be put in memory of the smuggler for having risked his life, because, in retrospect, he saved a large part of Warsaw's Jews from death by starvation. 
Emmanuel Ringelblum and the JDC had opened over 250 soup kitchens and served over 100,000 meals a day. Hospitals, public soup kitchens, orphanages, refugee centers, and recreational facilities were created. Education and schooling were prohibited, so Ringelblum and the JDC disguised schools as soup kitchens or medical centers. About 18,000 prisoners were forced to work in factories, producing German goods. One of the leaders of the Warsaw Resistance, Merrick Edelman, said, On April 18th, the very basis of ghetto life started to move from under people's feet. By now, everybody understood that the ghetto was to be liquidated, but nobody yet realized that its entire population was destined to die. Ringelblum documented his ghetto experience in a diary he kept. He wrote on March 18, 1941, The future historian will have to devote a fitting page to the Jewish woman in the war. She will fill an important page in Jewish history for her courage and resilience. Thanks to her, thousands of families managed to survive the horror of those days. Recently, an interesting phenomenon has taken place. In some of the House committees, women have taken the place of men who have abandoned their tasks, tired and exhausted by their work. Himmler visited Auschwitz on March 1, 1941. He ordered the expansion of the camp, as well as the construction of a second camp. March of 1941 was a busy time for Teddy. He started fighting in boxing matches in Auschwitz. He also joined the Auschwitz resistance organization, ZOW, or the Military Organization Union. It was formed by Wiltold Pelecki, a member of the secret Polish army. His plan was to deliberately get captured by the Nazis and sent to Auschwitz. While imprisoned, he would form a resistance. He was provided with a false identity and a fake name, Tomasz Serafinski. On September 19, 1940, he was arrested and deported to Auschwitz. He's the only person known to voluntarily enter the concentration camp. He arrived about three months after Teddy. By 1941, the ZOW had grown. Wiltold recruited Teddy when they met in March of 1941, working directly under his command. The story will conclude with part two on the next episode of Holocaust Histories. Teddy will be forced to fight at Auschwitz against a former German middleweight champion nicknamed the Butcher. The ZOW will build a radio inside the camp and send the first reports of death camps to Allied forces, only to be dismissed, believing the reports to be too extreme. Meanwhile in Warsaw, the ghetto conditions are worsening and deportations to concentration camps are more common each day. Soon, only Polish resistance forces remain, hiding and fighting. Thanks for listening to this episode. Please rate, subscribe, and tell a friend. You can send any questions, corrections, and comments to holocausthistories at gmail.com.